0: First John, we're just about to conclude that story, uh, study, and now, of course, we're getting close here to the end of the book of the Revelation. And uh, it's very difficult for me to end these two studies. I really love the approach that John has in his writings, the way that he approaches the things that God has given him. And in the beginning of First John, uh, John began with absolute certainty. The first three verses of that epistle express his certainty. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that he also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And that is John's affirmation of the truth of Christ's incarnation. Uh, it's his testimony concerning the eyewitness account of Christ's life. He was was certain about who Christ was because he saw him because he heard him because he listened to him with his own ears he touched him with his fingers I mean he had no doubt that what he received from Jesus was true and he was convinced that he is God and then likewise John ends first John with certainty in our closing lessons of first John we've been discussing absolutes that we affirm and John repeats what Christians know to be the truth And then in the Gospel of John, he also begins and ends with certainty. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." And those are words that echo Genesis. And John was as certain of the deity of Christ as he was of God's creation of the world. The psalmist said that uh, creation declares the glory of God. And then Jesus said that if his disciples should stop speaking of him and stop declaring that he was the king, he said the stones would cry out. And so John writes with certainty, and he says that, that Jesus Christ was from the beginning and he is God. And then in the end of the Gospel of John, he writes with that same certainty as he gives us a record of the life of Jesus Christ, of the miracles that he did, his activities, his preaching, his teaching, his kindness, his compassion, his perfection, and all of that pointed to the truth that Jesus is the Christ, and John was certain of that. And so it's not with any great wonder that we come down to the end of the Revelation, and John receives affirmation of these things that were revealed to him by God. And in our last discussion, we talked about the accuracy of this prophecy. The angel said to John, these sayings are faithful and true. And that's characteristic of the apostle John. He's as sure as he could be of what he wrote. And this is why John is such a good read for us. When we read him, we understand that he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when you read that, you come away with a good feeling. You believe this because John believed it. And this is what God always wants us to get from his word, that no matter where we pick it up and where we begin to read, any place that we read, we're reading words that are certain. Every word that God spoke is truth. The creation is truth. The fall of man is truth. The worldwide flood is truth. The plagues that God sent on Egypt, those are truth. As it records the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, those things are true. And it is with certainty that the angel said to John, these sayings are faithful and true. And if you'd seen anything that was one-tenth as fantastic as what John saw, you'd wonder, is my mind playing tricks on me? Have I dreamed something here? Could this be real? You know, I have um, some of those dreams, and uh, I have psychedelic dreams, not induced by drugs like some people, but uh, I dream some things that I know are not to be believed. Unless unless John should, should think that this was some figment of his wild imagination, God sent an angel to him to tell him these things will come to pass, just as you have seen in the revelation. And so every part of God's word, doesn't matter where you start, where you end, it's certain. God said it. You can bank on that. You can believe it. And I have no trouble telling you that I believe in the infallibility of God's word, and I do believe that we have a reliable record of what God said, and God has preserved this for us in the Bible. And then I also know that God has proved his reliability. He is 100% accurate. We have many prophecies in the Old Testament that came true exactly as God said that they would and so we can look at God's track record and I believe the prophecies that are yet to come true will come true now much of what happened or prophecy that was given in the old testament is yet to happen and uh, when it gives prophecy coupled with that with the prophecies of the first advent of Christ there's coupled with that prophecies of the second advent and all the ones of the first advent happened exactly as God said So there is no reason to believe otherwise concerning prophecies of the second coming. And this is because God has an infallible track record. And so when God sent his angel, one of those angels that are so often uh, involved in God's administration of his work in the world, John was assured that every word that was spoken is true. And I believe that was great comfort to John. Uh, He believed in the king triumphant. He believed it when Jesus said that he and the other apostles would reign in the millennial kingdom with him. And then to be able to see this revelation where he saw his own name written in the foundation, uh, foundation walls of the new Jerusalem. I mean, John was glad of that and strengthened by it, and he was glad to share that information, pass it along to other Christians that were living in a world that was, and they were struggling uh, in a world opposed to God. Now, I want you to notice verse number 7, Jesus speaks to John. Now, here, these are not the words of the angel. This is Jesus speaking to John, and he says, "'Behold, I come quickly.'" Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And so in these final words for believers, we're also taught the urgency of Christ's return. And Christians have always lived in the light of Christ's soon return. And this is one of the things that we do. We urge Christians to live for Christ and to serve him, and we often frame it in the context of Christ's soon return. Now, uh, that was a method that the apostles often used. Uh, they encourage faltering, discouraged Christians by telling them that Jesus will return. Now, it's easy for us to get weighed down by problems, it's easy for us to become discouraged. Uh, and there's nothing that Satan likes better than mumbling and grumbling, discontented Christians. And God knows that our Christian life can become weary when we lose the focus of our purpose. If we lose that focus of purpose that God saved us for him and whatever time that we have in this world, his work is always our top priority. But God knows those daily struggles that we have with Satan. He knows the myriads of demons that Satan has at his disposal and those can often uh, begin to weigh a Christian down. And so we have to turn our eyes to him and we think about his coming and that's always been a method of writing troubled minds in the midst of struggles. So this uh, time of deliverance is coming, and Christians from the very beginning have lived in that expectation. Now I want to take a few minutes tonight to show you that the second coming is a prominent theme of New Testament teaching, and this is proven by the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ. So the second coming of Christ is imminent, and it's evident that with so much emphasis that place is placed on the second coming that the early Christians expected that Christ would come in their lifetime. And that doesn't mean that they lived with a, a prediction of the timing. This is not a herald camping date setting type of assurance. No, it's not that they thought that they couldn't die without seeing Christ. Well, it was evident that there were Christians that were dying all around them. There was persecution. People were being martyred for the cause of Christ. They were being relentlessly persecuted for their faith. So many of them died as martyrs. So they knew that it was, it was still possible to die without having seen Christ. But they didn't live in any sort of a dejected hope. They lived in the kind of expectation that caused them to adjust their lives accordingly. And the proof that they believed in the imminent return of Jesus Christ is in the way that they lived. And I would say that your belief in the imminent return of Christ can be determined by the way that you live. You see, if people really believe that Christ was going to return today, how would it affect their behavior? If Christians really thought that Jesus could come back at any time and they were convinced of that, then I don't think that we would have second thoughts, about what we do on Sunday mornings when the the services of God are going on. I don't think that we would look for excuses as to why we can't be around on Sunday nights. I don't think that we'd find ourselves in, in situations that would cause shame if we thought that Jesus would show up at any moment. And so the degree to which we allow ourselves to enter into sin and into any kind of activity that denies the Christ that we believe in Shows how much you're really convinced of the second coming. You know, I remember when I was young that I limited a whole lot of what I would otherwise do because my mom would tell me, Your dad's coming home. And if you don't pay attention to me and do what you're supposed to do, you're going to catch it from him when he gets home. And folks, I lived in the belief that my dad was coming home. And there were a lot of things that I would not do that otherwise would because I believed he was coming home. That was a sure thing and it changed my behavior. And that's the very same kind of thought that ought to grab our attention whenever we're tempted to do things against which God has commanded. See, the Bible is just like mom. She tells you dad is coming. And in this case, we're talking about Jesus is coming. And you can be sure of that, and you can believe that. And if you do, it will alter your behavior. Now, the Apostle Paul fought this way in Titus chapter 2. He put it in this way. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now, you see the reasoning in that passage? This is what we have been taught to do. We're saved by the blood of Christ. We've been redeemed from our sins. We've been purified by the Holy Spirit. We have been saved to be people of good works. And that's what our salvation was designed to do. And the blessing of Christ's coming is called the blessed hope. That's what we're living for. That's what energizes us to fight the temptations of the flesh. And that's what causes us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. It causes us to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. And if the second coming does not do that for you, then you don't really believe it. You see, no matter how much you come to church and how often you amen the sermons and you sing the songs and you nod your head in agreement at the preaching on the second coming, folks, if it has not changed your behavior, then you really don't believe it. You can't believe it and continuously live in sin. And then I might take that a step further. We've learned in our study of 1 John that it's impossible for a Christian to live in any kind of habitual sin and still claim that he's a Christian. And this is because Christians are characterized by godliness and holiness. Christians are are those that affirm the imminent return of Christ and so they live their lives accordingly. And John was sure enough, sure enough of Christ's return that he encouraged his converts with it. He said, "And now little children abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed at him before or shame before him at his coming." Now, the explanation of that's very simple. If you believe that he's coming, then you don't want to get caught red-handed doing what you ought not to be doing if he were to show up at this very moment. Now, Peter had a different way of saying that, and uh, he coupled it with a frightening image of the fury of Christ's coming and his judgment upon the world. Now, most often when we, as Christians, when we talk about the second coming of Christ, we, we think about it with a euphoric feeling or speak of it in euphoric terms I mean we want to talk about the the trumpet that sounds and hearing that trumpet when Christ comes back we think about the skies uh, parting and opening up and there seeing the glory of God and that's certainly a part of this and I'm going to speak to that in just a moment but Peter had a different way of encouraging believers we don't need to be afraid of Christ coming except that we are to be aware of the seriousness of it and the fury with which the world will be judged by him and so Peter said this in Second Peter chapter 3, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the things that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be? In all holy conversation, that means your manner of life and godliness, looking for the hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we according to his promise look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And so I think that Peter is saying there that we had better be sure of where we stand with God because when Christ comes, he returns with vengeance on the world. He's going to burn this world up, and when he comes, there will be no hope for unbelievers. And then if you want to back up a little bit to Second Peter chapter 1 and verse number 10, he said, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the difference between being prepared and unprepared at the second coming is will you experience God's wrath at the second coming or will you enter abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of Christ? And what you're doing with your life right now is where you find the assurance of the way that you're going to leave this life. And so if you claim to be a Christian, and the reality of the the second coming has done nothing for you in terms of holiness, then you have no reason to have confidence that you will not be ashamed when Christ comes. And so the New Testament writers included the the second comings often in their dealings with the church. One of those churches that struggled greatly with immorality was the church at Corinth. And Paul uh, greeted that church knowing full well in his salutation of his letter to the Corinthians. He knew full well what he was going to write to them and how he was going to end up his comments with them. But this was a church that was filled with strife and envy. There were jealousies in the church. There was immorality. They tolerated the sin of incest by one of their members. They had a problem with the Lord's Supper. And God chastised some of them for that. And to put it to you very bluntly, God killed some of the members of that church because of their wickedness. And then they had this abuse of spiritual gifts that was going on. And they were puffed up and they were bragging about their spirituality. And Paul knew all of that. And he sat down to write his first letter with all of that in mind. And you know the way that he opened his letter Listen to part of his salutation. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God, which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him, in all utterance, and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, listen, waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you are called under the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so having all of this sin of the church in mind, Paul knew that there were true believers there. He spent 18 months in Corinth teaching them, building them up in the faith, beginning that church there. He was very sure of his converts. But you notice that information that he includes at the beginning, waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was as natural a doctrine for for the Apostle Paul as anything that he taught. It was on his mind all the time. It just flowed out of his thoughts that this is what Christians are supposed to be doing. We are waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was a great way to preface the letter. And, And then he gets down to the sin of the church. And his point is, Christ is coming. Christ is coming. So what are you doing messing around in all of this sin? Why are you living like the devil? And then there's this interesting comment that Paul makes at the end of the letter. This is in the 16th chapter in verse 22. He says, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. Now that's the conclusion after writing all those words of correction and all those comments to... Uh, those that don't truly believe in Christ. And I think that what he means there is that those who take no heed to the correction of God's word do not really belong to Christ. That's why he uses the word anathema. Anathema is a Greek word. It it means accursed. And these were Greek-speaking people. Uh, They would have no trouble at all with this word. They understood it. They were in Corinth. That's a Greek-speaking city. And so anathema is no problem for them to understand. Those that do not love Christ, Paul says, they are cursed. And for people who think that just any old God will do, that you just worship any God that you want, choose the one that you want, worship the God of your choice, you need to know this, that the Bible is intolerant on this. The Scripture says that people that do not believe in Christ are cursed. And I know that it doesn't make good politics for me to say that, but it makes good theology. And I'll remind you that it's not good politics that get you into heaven. It's good theology. So anathema is okay. They, they understood that, and we understand it. That's a word that's been brought over into the English language, and, and uh, we understand it. But the word that comes after that is a different one. Now, after anathema, he writes maranatha. And maranatha is not a Greek word. That's an Aramaic word, Aramaic wasn't spoken in Greek-speaking cities. Aramaic was a language that was used in Palestine. It's sort of a mixed-up version of a combination of Hebrew and Syriac and some other Canaanite languages. And Jesus spoke in Aramaic. That's what was in common use in Galilee at the time that Jesus preached there. When he went down to Jerusalem and he spoke in the temple there, he would speak in Hebrew. But Aramaic was the common language that they spoke. But that was not spoken in Greek speaking cities. So why does Paul bring in a word like this? Why would he use a word that Greek speaking people don't know? Now, the word means our Lord comes. And depending upon where you accent it, it means our Lord has come. And you may remember, those of you who've been here for a while, when I did the series on 1 Corinthians, um, I told you the story about two old ladies that listened to the pastor preaching on the second coming. And he said, this is an early Christian greeting. He was trying to show them the point of this, that the early Christians used this word, Maranatha. And so he said, the next time that you meet another Christian, then you greet them by saying Maranatha. Well, those two old ladies forgot the word and they came to church on Sunday night and they were arguing with each other about what the word was and they couldn't remember it. And so one of them saw the pastor walking across the parking lot and they shouted out to him, marijuana, pastor. And, and the word's not marijuana, even though a lot of Christians would recognize that a lot easier than they would Maranatha. But, but why would Paul use an Aramaic word? Well, the only explanation for it is that it was common among Christians. They were used to thinking about the coming of Christ, and so they would regularly greet one, regularly greet one another with this word, Maranatha, which means our Lord comes. And so what Paul did, he just brought that word to them. And although the common Greek-speaking people, it wouldn't mean anything to them, yet because the Christians were used to thinking about this and talking about it and using that word, believing that Christ would come, they used that as, as sort of a badge of Christianity. This is a word that was used by those that were redeemed. Now, he says, you are cursed if you don't love the Lord and look for his coming But then on the other hand, he says, you are blessed and happy if you live in the expectation that he's coming. So we could go on and on, and we could talk about many, many different scriptures where the New Testament talks about the anticipation of Christ's coming. And you see that in warnings with fury, like we just read in 2 Peter. But then again, as I said a moment ago, you also see it spoken in the euphoric terms, now Paul explained that explained the second coming in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and these were people that were living in such expectation that Christ would come that some of them thought they'd actually missed missed the coming of Christ And so Paul had to explain this to him. And this is why he gives us these great passages in Thessalonians. First Thessalonians talking about the second coming. Second Thessalonians dwelling a great deal on the Antichrist and what will happen after Christ comes. But he had this beautiful passage that we read often when we're trying uh, to enliven Grieving spirits. For instance, when we're talking at funerals, this is a this is a passage that's often used, and that's First Thessalonians four thirteen to seventeen, where he said, "But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep." And there he means, of course, that are dead. That ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them, or that means precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first... Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Paul said that to encourage Christians. And he wrote that with the sort of expectation that Christ is coming, with an expectation that it would not be very much hope, or it wouldn't be the hope that it could be, unless they thought that Christ would actually come in their lifetime. And so this is why he says, we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord. And so that sounds a lot like Paul believed that Jesus would come in his lifetime. So that coming of Christ, that imminent return, this doctrine that he can come at any time was great encouragement to Christians. And they lived in the expectancy of it. And that expectancy shaped the way that they lived. Because as long as they were focused on Christ's return, believing he could come back at any time and they knew if they lived that way, they would not be ashamed when he appeared. Now, it's also important for us to note here what the imminent return of Christ does not mean. Now, they were certain of the return, but they were uncertain of the timing of it. And so we never find the apostles predicting the exact time. In fact, the Bible calls it a surprising event. I mean, not in the sense that we that are Christians would doubt it, and therefore we're surprised that it actually comes, but in the sense that we're not sure of the exact time. Now the scripture says that his coming will be as a thief in the night. Now that's what Peter said in those verses we read in Second Peter three. <coughs> Excuse me. And then Paul said in First Thessalonians five, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, Then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. And so, though Christ's coming is at a certain time, his coming uh, not at a certain time, I should say, yet his coming is certain. And Paul explains that, that we will be surprised when he comes, but not surprised when he does come. His coming is not going to overtake us as those that are unprepared for it. And so Jesus said in Matthew 24, But know this, that if the good men of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in an hour that ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Now we don't want to be confused by the first part of verse number 7. It says, behold, I come quickly, because that is not an estimation of the timing of the second coming, but rather it means that the second coming will unfold rapidly. When it begins, it will unfold rapidly. See, when Christ comes, there won't be any warning signs of his coming. I'm constantly barraged by questions about this with comments like, do you think what's happening uh, now and means that the things that we're seeing now means that Christ is coming soon? Is there some event that's taking place in Israel right now that causes you to believe that Christ is coming soon? Is the World Council of Churches doing something that would cause us to believe that Christ is coming soon? And people are looking for these signs of an indication. uh, Does it mean that we're right on the cusp of the second coming? And the only biblical response that I can give to that is, I don't know. It doesn't matter what's happening on the other side of the world. It doesn't matter anything that's going to take place because Jesus can come at any time. It doesn't matter what's happening in America. It doesn't ha- matter what's happening in Israel or anywhere else. Christ can come at any time. So we're, we're to be careful for this, not to be looking for signs. The Bible says, be prepared for his coming, but that doesn't mean go out every day and stare into the eastern sky to see if you see it breaking loose and, and seeing if Jesus is coming. What it means to be prepared for his coming is to live like he's coming. That's what the Bible talks about, being prepared for it. Jesus said, I come quickly. And that means that when he comes... Boom, just like that, he's here. No time to prepare, no time to get ready for it, no time to change directions, no time to make up lost time. But he will appear suddenly. And then these events in Revelation begin to unfold in rapid-fire succession. You see, from the time that Christ appears and the Antichrist is set up and then torn down, From the time that he appears and there's this worldwide coalition of nations that come together to fight against him and then are destroyed, and from the time that he appears and there are earthquakes and hailstones and meteors that fall from the sky, millions of people are killed, it only takes seven years, only seven years. In the scheme of eternity, that is a nanosecond. Now there's urgency about The return of Christ there's urgency for Christians to get ready for it there's urgency in the work that Christ has called us to do in reaching the world with the gospel there's urgency for your life and that urgency is that you live every single day like it's your last day on earth you expect Christ to return because he will and then there's urgency that when it happens there's no holding it up there's no stopping this The scripture says, as the lightning appears in the east and then shines into the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So he comes in a flash. You know, people argue about that. Where's heaven? And how far away is heaven? How long is it going to take Christ to get to this earth when he decides to come? And perhaps they imagine their minds that it would take him 20 billion years, 20 billion light years, to cross the universe in order to get to heaven. You know, that really doesn't matter. You know why? Because when he gets here. He's here doesn't matter how long it took him to get here. When he gets here, he's here. A split second, in a split second, everything changes. And we have to be ready for that. And so the angel says, these sayings are faithful and true. And Jesus says, I am coming quickly. And John wrote that down. John believed that it was certain. Folks, it is as re- re- real as this room that we're in right now. We have to be ready for it and to count on it because this is what God told us to do. So these are final thoughts for Christians. And as I told you last week, when you consider the last words of any great person, you think, well, those words must be worth listening to. I'd like to hear what any great person says before uh, he dies, the final words. And how much more should the final thoughts of God And this close to the revelation, be far more worthy of our consideration than anything that man can say. God said this, and God is never wrong. Man can be wrong, but believe it, folks, God never is. Christ is coming, and he could come at any moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, we're able to talk about this great subject tonight, to think about our Lord Jesus Christ, that he's coming. And I do pray, Lord, that Christians would be prepared for that, that we would live our lives as if we believed that he could come at any moment. And I do know this, as we've said tonight, that Christians that truly believe this, if this is on their heart, it changes the way that we live. It changes the things that we do. And it'll make us greater servants of you if we truly believe that you could come at any moment. Lord, help us to live in the expectation of it and be the kind of church that you'd have us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.